0: Do you remember your first apartment? I remember mine. It was a tiny one-bedroom place in Pontiac, and it sat about a 100 feet from Telegraph Road, and it was maybe a mile or so south of what was then a great big shopping center called Summit Place Mall in Waterford, which they just tore down Everything in that apartment was beige, except for the Mexican blanket that I threw over the old sofa to make it look a little brighter. I had used furniture, a television I bought on layaway at Kmart, and a brand new bed to sleep on. I was 19 years old, and while I didn't have much, I was happy there. And I'd like to think that the subject of today's episode, 19-year-old Carmen Van Hus, Well, I'd like to think she felt the same way about her apartment at Turtle Creek in Indianapolis. Instead of sharing a two-bedroom apartment with three girls, as she'd done previously, she was sharing a studio apartment with her boyfriend. It was a modest space located on the third floor of the apartment building. The studio was just over 400 square feet, and the entrance went through the tiny kitchen leading to the living room. On one side was a closet, and next to that, the entrance to the bathroom. A modest place, but it had air conditioning and a dishwasher, and it was a place to call home. Now Carmen did have to walk up a couple flights of stairs to get to her third floor unit, and that's a lot of steps, but she was young and energetic. The apartment complex that she lived in is still there, even now, more than 25 years later. It's located about a quarter of a mile as the crow flies from the St. Vincent Indianapolis Hospital campus, and perhaps a mile from the 465 loop which circles the city. Carmen paid the rent by waiting tables, and it's hard to say how far her apartment was from her job at the local pizza place. Carmen's early life was not easy. Her parents split up when she was small, and she would spend her teen years living with her aunt and uncle. Carmen was loved by her parents, her siblings, and extended family. There's no doubt about that. They provided her with affection, stability, and consistency. As a teenager, Carmen attended Lawrence Central High School on the northeast side of Indianapolis. But school wasn't for her. She dropped out. When she was in high school, one of the courses she really enjoyed was art, and she made a portfolio of her artwork something her brother still has to this day. School wasn't to Carmen's liking. Not because she didn't have the smarts. She was a bright girl and willing to work hard. When she dropped out, her family encouraged her to pursue her GED, so she put her focus there and obtained that instead of a diploma. She waited tables at a local breakfast place to pay her way. And when some of her friends from high school graduated, she moved into an apartment with a couple of them, and eventually took another waitressing job, leaving the small local eatery for work at the local pizza hut, and she moved into a new place, the apartment at Turtle Creek. Come with me to March of 1993, when Carmen Van Huss shares a meal with someone who she thought was a friend, and pays for the dinner with her life. This isn't the first time Already Gone visited Indianapolis, although some may argue that Speedway, Indiana, a tiny city on the western edge of Indianapolis, doesn't really count. But it was the site of the gruesome Burger Chef murders, which happened 15 years before Carmen's death, and we covered these back in episode 23, which was released in September of 2016. The subject of today's episode, Carmen Van Huss. A pretty dark haired teenager with two different colored eyes. She spent the evening of March 22nd, 1993 at the local hospital with her father and three year old brother. They were visiting her grandmother. Her grandmother was very ill and Carmen made sure to see her at Community Hospital South and check on her. When visiting hours ended, Carmen drove her father and little brother back to their home. When they arrived, her father asked if she would stay the night. It was nearly 10 o'clock, and he was worried about her driving home when it's so late and so dark out. It was more than 20 miles from the hospital to her apartment at Turtle Creek, and the night was gray, rainy, and cold, with temperatures in the 30s. Her dad may have also been concerned about her making the drive in such miserable weather. Carmen thanked him for the offer, but declined. She told him she was working on Tuesday, and her uniform needed to be laundered before the shift. From what she said to her father, it appeared that her plan for the rest of the evening was to head home and start doing some laundry. What no one realized is that when Carmen bid farewell to her father and brother, it was the last time she would be seen alive, except by the man who would murder her. About 11 p.m., neighbors at the apartment complex heard her return, and Carmen was not alone. They would tell police they heard Carmen and a male voice come up the steps and enter the apartment. The pair shared a meal, takeout from a local fast-food place. There were also a couple of beers on the table as well. It's unknown if Carmen had plans with this person, which is why she declined her father's offer to sleep over at the family home, or if Carmen ran into someone she knew and the events that occurred that evening—dinner, drinks, and a violent death—were spur-of-the-moment. Or perhaps what she said about washing her uniform was true, and she ran into a neighbor in the laundry area and invited him upstairs to chat over dinner. Around 1 or one thirty in the morning, neighbors again heard Carmen. This time, she was yelling, Get off! Get off of me! Minutes later, they heard someone leave Carmen's apartment, headed down the stairs and away from the building. This man the unknown male responsible for her murder, went from friendly dinner companion to cold-blooded killer in the span of two hours. Neighbors heard the two of them arrive around 11 p.m., and they heard him depart around 1.15 or 1.30. Something happened in that apartment. Something set him off, enraged him to the point where he attacked and murdered Carmen Van Hus. After hearing her yelling for him to, quote, get off of me, Carmen's neighbors didn't call the police or knock on her door to see if things were all right. Instead, they grumbled to themselves and went back to sleep, deciding they would file a noise complaint with the landlord in the morning, which one of them did. Her landlord would post a note on the door of her apartment, not knowing that she was laying dead on the floor just a few feet away from where the note was posted. Now, Carmen may have lied to her father about needing to wash her uniform, but the story about working at Pizza Hut on Tuesday was true. But Carmen didn't show up for her shift, nor did she call to say she wouldn't make it. The same thing happened on Wednesday, and one of Carmen's friends, a former roommate, Missy Hennings, she stopped in at the Pizza Hut. She knew Carmen worked there, and Missy was looking for a waitressing job. When she approached the manager with a job application in hand, she mentioned being friends with Carmen, hoping that would help her get the job. The manager said that Carmen had been a no-show the last couple of days, and Missy remarked that that didn't sound like Carmen. The two of them decided to reach out to Carmen's father and see if he'd been in touch with her. The restaurant manager pulled Carmen's job application out of her file and placed a call to James Van Hus. He told them he hadn't seen or spoken to Carmen since they left the hospital late Monday night, but he was concerned and told the manager that he would head to Carmen's apartment to check on her. Again, it's 1993. There are no cell phones. If he called her apartment and got no answer, there wasn't another way to reach her. When her father arrives at Carmen's apartment, he spots her car in the parking lot. So he climbs the steps to the third floor where he finds the landlord's note on the door of the apartment, a note reminding her to keep things quiet late in the evening, reminding her to be respectful of her neighbors. Her dad pulled the note off the door and knocked, but there was no answer. When he tried the knob, the door opened and he let himself in. Once inside, Van Huss found remnants of a fast food meal in the modest kitchen, along with empty beer bottles. Then he saw Carmen, his daughter was on the floor. She'd been stabbed dozens of times, and her body was cold and lifeless. She'd been dead for nearly two full days. The Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department, or IMPD, responded immediately to his 911 call. Carmen, who is clearly deceased and obviously the victim of a crime, is pronounced dead and arrangements are made to transport her to the coroner's office. Carmen had been stabbed and sexually assaulted. Her partially clad body was sprawled across the floor of her room. In the apartment, police found remnants of a meal a fast food takeout dinner and a couple of empty beer bottles. A veritable treasure trove of evidence. All of it is carefully collected and sent to the lab for processing. Police secure the apartment and begin taking photos. The same neighbors who heard Carmen enter the apartment with a companion on Monday night, the same neighbors that heard her crying out, the same neighbors that heard someone leave her apartment, they now watch and listen as police came and went from her unit. They stood silently as the coroner arrived to take her remains to the morgue for examination. Many of them are interviewed by police, What did they hear that night? What did they see? What did they know about Carmen? And what do they remember about Monday night? When her body arrives on the coroner's table, more evidence is collected. A rape kit is done. Her nails are scraped. They're looking for any bit of trace evidence that could lead police to the person responsible for killing her. The coroner counts the stab wounds on her body, finding dozens of them. Her death was violent and bloody. It seems likely that her killer was covered in blood when he left her dead on the floor. He took the murder weapon with him, as it was never recovered. The murder weapon has never been identified either beyond being a, quote, sharp object. As Carmen's family is preparing for her funeral, IMPD is investigating those closest to Carmen They speak with her current boyfriend, who was out of state at the time of the murder. Not only do witnesses place him in Arizona, there are phone calls between he and Carmen tracked on a calling card. Now, listeners, if you don't remember the early 90s, a calling card was something we used in the days before cell phones to make long-distance calls at a discounted price. Carmen would not live to see the prevalence of cellular phones and other handheld devices. Police track down her former boyfriend, and he too has an alibi for the night that Carmen was killed. However, the former boyfriend reacted strangely to the murder and subsequent questioning. He will move out of state in the weeks after her death. These activities seem suspicious to law enforcement and to those who knew him. Eventually, DNA evidence is processed, and it will eliminate both her current and former boyfriends as suspects in her murder. IMPD interviews her neighbors, her friends, her co-workers. They talk to anyone with a connection to the murdered girl, hoping someone will point them in the right direction. It's clear that Carmen knew her killer. She welcomed him into the apartment and the two shared a meal and a couple of beers. They were together about two hours before the assault began. The question is, did she have plans to see him that night? Or was this a chance encounter and he ended up back at her apartment? As I said, in 1993, the majority of people were not using cell phones, and pagers are still relatively rare and expensive. This made it difficult to track who Carmen may have called, particularly if she stopped at a phone booth to call someone and made plans, or if she placed a call from work earlier that day. Or did she stop to pick up food on the way home? running into an old friend or former classmate. Is this someone that she impulsively invited back to her place? Another thought is what if she ran into someone at the apartment complex, a man who seemed friendly and kind, but turned vicious and brutal when they were alone. While the neighbors said they heard him walk down the steps leaving her place, they made no mention of a vehicle driving away. One thing we do know is that Carmen didn't feel threatened or frightened by this man if she invited him into her apartment. The invitation was made for them to share a meal, to have a beer, and catch up, but he had other ideas and the evening devolved into something more sinister and more violent. Thinking perhaps that Carmen's murder was the work of a known criminal, IMPD looked at another home invasion and knife attack that happened the day before Carmen was attacked. This occurred not too far from Carmen's apartment, and in this case, a woman came home and interrupted a burglar, who attacked her with a knife and then fled the scene. Could this man be the person who killed Carmen? But when the police department looks more closely at the man, they learn that he was already in police custody by the time Carmen was killed. He could not have been responsible for her murder. So they move on to other people in her circle, trying to find the man responsible for this heinous crime. They learn that Carmen was a good kid. She didn't have a criminal record. She wasn't mixed up in drugs or other illegal activities. She was kind and well liked. No one could think of a reason that she would die such a violent death. Carmen had a good relationship with her living boyfriend as well. Of course, he was out of state at the time of her murder. The two appeared to be on good terms in getting along in March of 1993. The studio apartment was not burglarized. Her purse and wallet were untouched. Robbery was not the motive for what happened that night. The funeral for Carmen Hope Van Huss is held a week after her murder on Monday, March 29, 1993. As family is saying their farewell to Carmen and laying her to rest, they receive additional tragic news. Carmen's grandmother, the same one that she visited with her father and brother the night of the murder, her grandmother has passed away. The death of Carmen's paternal grandmother compounds the tragedy of losing their teenage daughter. The Van Hus family, financially unable to bear the burden of not one but two funerals that week, turns to the community for help asking for donations to pay for yet another burial of a beloved family member. As Indianapolis police continue running down leads in Carmen's case, they are frustrated to see that they're not getting anywhere. They aren't able to identify the man at her apartment that night. While her neighbors heard her come home with a guy, no one can describe him. No one can tell them what vehicle he was driving or what he looked like. The leads begin to dry up, and Carmen's case goes cold. And that's where her case sits for years in the cold case files. Another homicide in a big city. Each year, Carmen's parents check in with police, hoping for an answer, for some progress, for resolution. Someone raped and stabbed their daughter. Someone needs to be held accountable. James Van Huss got a first-hand look at what was done to his little girl. Surely police can find out who did this. The department shows him the work that they've done in an attempt to close the case, but it's never enough for an arrest. The efforts of James Van Huss to learn who murdered his daughter come to an end in 2002, when his life is cut short after a fatal car accident. Carmen's father was only 49 years old. This leaves her mother and siblings, including her younger brother James Jr., aka Jimmy, to look for justice in the case. In 2013, on the 20th anniversary of her murder, Crime Stoppers puts ads in the local newspapers promoting Carmen's case. They are offering a cash reward of $1,000 for information. Sadly, the push gets them nowhere and her case file sits. In May of 2013, the Indianapolis Star newspaper runs a story about Carmen's case, detailing her activities leading up to the murder, and this story touches on Carmen's younger brother, Jimmy. He was only 15 years old when his sister died. The loss of Carmen was difficult for him and for his parents. James Jr. says, quote, "'At the time this happened, me and her were starting to get really close.'" He goes on to discuss the toll that her murder took on their father, and I would imagine that you never actually recover from the loss of a child or the horror of finding her murdered as he did that day in March of 1993. 2013 is an eventful year for the case. Not only is it the 20th anniversary of her death, but an Indianapolis metropolitan police detective starts looking at the file in his spare time bringing a fresh set of eyes to a long-stalled investigation. Detective Sergeant William Carter had success closing a cold case in 2011. He'd looked at the unsolved 1989 murder of 16-year-old Amy Widener. While there was DNA available in the Widener case, he went old school, pulling the prints from her file and running them through the database again, and this time, there was a hit. He matched a bloody palm print from Widener's crime scene to prints from another case, and matched those to a man named Rodney Denk. Denk was in his teens at the time of Widener's murder, and he would later confess to killing her. He will be sentenced to decades in prison. Carter's work on that case, among others, had him named Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department's Investigator of the Year. You can find the murder of Amy Widener featured on a couple of different television programs. Trying to reignite interest in Carmen's long stalled murder investigation, Carter turns to social media, creating a Facebook page, Justice for Carmen Van Hus. Now, Bill Carter may be a detective sergeant with the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police, but he's not a homicide detective. He's not a cold case detective. He works in nuisance and abatement but he finds himself drawn to these old, unsolved murders. Carter looked at the DNA evidence available in the Van Huss murder. He knew the DNA was processed to Sate Lab, but he wanted another, more costly test run, one that would give investigators significantly more information about the killer. And I should mention that back in 1993, when biological materials from Carmen's rape kit are sent to the lab for processing, The lab sends back a report that Carmen's killer is a female of European descent. Yeah, the lab analyzed the wrong specimen using Carmen's DNA, not that of the man who killed her. They used Carmen's DNA to build the DNA profile in the case. Eventually, the DNA will be run again and a male profile is returned, but it brings no hits in the database. This male profile will be used to rule out her current boyfriend, the one who was in Arizona at the time of the murder, and it also rules out her previous boyfriend, the one who hastily moved out of state after she was killed. Carter took his request to IMPD Brass, who denied the funding. So he decided to take matters into his own hands and created a GoFundMe account. If the department doesn't have money for the test, he'd ask the community for help. And more than 30 people chipped in to help him raise the $1,000 needed for testing. Within a day, Carter had the funds he needed for Carmen's case, with a little left over to go toward the Crime Stoppers reward. And listeners, this is where things get complicated at IMPD. But first, let's hear from this week's sponsor. As listeners of this podcast, I know you enjoy true crime stories that evoke curiosity and emotion. So I'm recommending a new type of documentary streaming service called Magellan TV. Founded by filmmakers, Magellan TV's team of producers and curators created a collection of premium ad-free content, diving into diverse subjects and interests like history, science, space, nature, and of course, true crime. With new content arriving regularly, I'll never run out of things to watch. While looking through the Magellan TV app, I immediately found a documentary that piqued my interest parachute murder plot. This documentary tells the story of Victoria Celier who jumped out of an airplane at 4,000 feet, something she'd done over 2,000 times before, but this time was different. Her parachute didn't open and she came crashing down to the ground. Victoria survived, and soon found out someone had tried to kill her for the second time. I won't spoil the story for you; you'll have to watch for yourself. This is just one of the many unique titles. Listeners, join me in watching documentaries anywhere, anytime by starting your two month free trial of Magellan TV. Go to MagellanTV.com/slash Already Gone to take advantage of their fifteen hundred documentary movies, series, and executive playlists. That's magellantv.com slash already gone for two months free. IMPD Detective Carter believes that the murder of 19 year old Carmen Van Hus in March of '93 is a solvable case. He just needs one more DNA test, a specialized test, so he can prove it. Unfortunately, the department would not approve the funding. So Carter took matters into his own hands, creating a GoFundMe to pay for the advanced testing. When the assistant chief got wind of Carter's actions, he was not pleased. The assistant criminal investigations commander, Chris Bailey, told local reporters that Carter is off the Van Huss case, effective immediately. And this, right here, is where shit hits the fan. In a February 27, 2015 article in the Indianapolis Star, Bailey told the press that Carter's removal had nothing to do with the GoFundMe, but was because of, quote, a review of assignments and procedures. When Carmen's kid brother, Jimmy, learns that Carter is off the case, he is not happy, saying, quote, this is ridiculous. Something has to be changed if this is how the department is going to be run. It just makes no sense. Jimmy had contributed $300 of his own money toward the testing. Quote, the only person who has made any progress on the case is Bill Carter, and here they are, taking him off of it. Detective Carter declined to comment for the February 27th story. And you can feel how frustrated the Van Hus family was by Carter's removal from the case. They are finally seeing movement in the case, and it feels like IMPD Brass is shutting everything down. The Van Hus family is so shaken at the thought of Carter's removal that they start an online petition to have him reinstated and within 24 hours, they collect hundreds of signatures. There was an uproar on social media as the news spread that Carter was pulled off the investigation. The good news is that Carter will remain on the case. The bad news is that the department wanted the GoFundMe money returned to donors, and the department wanted time to evaluate whether the second DNA test was truly needed to move the case forward. In 2015, there's no in-depth DNA analysis on a now 22-year-old murder. In a news story on Friday, February 28th, IMPD walked the whole thing back. They painted it as a big misunderstanding. Carter wasn't ever removed from the case. The police chief, Richard Height, came forward to say he didn't know why the Van Huss family thought Carter was removed from the investigation. And this announcement came as a big relief to the Van Huss family they weren't prepared to lose a dedicated investigator like Carter. They want Carmen's case resolved and see him as their best hope. Listeners, here we are, four and a half years later, and Carter is still working the Van Huss case. He's still seeking that elusive DNA match. And I don't often get into theories on cases. I like to present the case and let you decide how things went down. But Carmen's case bothers me. When I look at the amount of evidence they had in 93, this should have been solved. There were remnants of a fast-food meal at the apartment. Did investigators visit those restaurants to see if anyone recalled selling that food around 11 o'clock Monday night? Then there were beer bottles, which should have been covered in fingerprints. Carmen was stabbed repeatedly, and her killer walked out of there with blood on him. Did he leave bloody shoe prints on the way out? Then, uh, you look at the snafu at the crime lab, where instead of returning the DNA profile of the man who raped and stabbed her, they sent back Carmen's own DNA profile to the department. Of course, Carmen's boyfriend, both current and former, were looked at closely, but both had solid alibis for the night in question and would be ruled out by DNA testing. If you want to know what I think... I believe that the man who killed Carmen is in her social circle. She either went to school with him, worked with him, lived near him, or he was friends with or maybe dated one of her friends. It could even be somebody's brother. They had a friendly conversation as they entered her place. They shared a meal and a couple of beers. Carmen was comfortable with him, and I think that's because she knew him. The murder of Carmen Van Huss tugs at me because it should be solved. One can hope that continued work on the evidence that Indianapolis police have in the case will lead them to the person responsible for her death. And I'm thankful that her case is not forgotten, that it's being worked and looked at by a detective. When Bill Carter picked up the Van Hus case file in 2013, I don't think he thought resolution would take this long. He's now Lieutenant Carter and he's still hoping that DNA technology will progress to the point that Carmen's killer can be identified, perhaps even using genetic genealogy. Lieutenant Carter is interested in hearing from people who lived in Turtle Creek Apartments in March of 1993. You could have information that is helpful to the investigation. Also, if you were friends with Carmen or ran in the same circles, even if you've spoken with law enforcement about the case previously, please contact Lt. Carter at area code 317-327-1270. Or, if you prefer to make an anonymous tip in the case, contact Central Indiana Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please... Be safe. Up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart Online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. <laughs> Say what now? 5%, 5% percent back. back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart Online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. A.